I'm so happy to be partnering with Oto this episode. They're my go-to brand for CBD. As well as their award-winning sleep collection, they also have a CBD skincare range with everything from body oils to face creams. A wonder ingredient in skincare, CBD can increase the absorption of other products into the skin while tackling a number of skin problems including acne and eczema and can help defy the signs of ageing. Although personally, I think it's great if you just want a calming, hydrating feeling for your skin. CBD also helps bring the body back into balance so you can get a better night's sleep, manage your anxiety better or feel the impact of stressful situations less all of which help improve the appearance of your skin. Listeners can enjoy 10% off all Oto products with their online shop at otocbd.com slash fear itself with the code fear10. Hello, my name is Chris McCausland and my biggest fear is losing control or being in situations where I don't have control. Control, control, control. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself, with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear, how it limits them, how it motivates them, how they face it, and what you can learn about yourself and the world around you from your fear. My guest this week is the stand-up comedian and actor Chris McCausland. He is the first blind professional comedian in the world and is firmly established at the very top of the UK's comedy circuit. He made his stand-up debut on Live at the Apollo. He has since appeared on Would I Lie to You and Have I Got News for You. He has also performed stand-up on three series of the Comedy Store for Paramount Comedy and Comedy Central. However, he says the highlight of his career, and indeed his life, is getting the conundrum right on 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. Hello, Chris. Hello. Thank you so much for being here, and an extra big thank you, because I know one of your fears includes actually doing this podcast, so thank you. Yeah, just anything (laughs) that's uh, remotely personal and intimate and open. How did comedy come about for you? Because... It feels like there's a big clash between being a comedian and the fear of losing control. Um, well, stand-up for me, I mean, stand-up for most people really is is never a, a career choice. It's it's something you just do to do it, to have a go. It was just one of those things, I, I saw something online and I, it was like a, um, it, it was like a, you can be a stand-up comedian. And, and the instant reaction was, it was... I could never do that, you know. You need, you must need like a, an X factor, or you know, I could. That's not me. I could never do that. And then I, I just kind of thought about it a bit too long and thought, you know, loads of people must have a go and be really, really shit. <laughs> you know, there's, there's like there must be a whole world of comedy out there that we never see of people trying and failing. All I'd have to do is not be the worst person that's ever tried it, you know. So uh, it kind of that gave me the confidence to try and write five minutes and book myself into an open mic gig. Because I'd set the bar so low that I just had to not be the worst person that I'd ever tried. <laughs> and um, I think they laughed at like one or two, one or two things, you know, and it was enough. It was enough to make me do it again and then and then again. And I was very lucky that through the first run of gigs that I did, I didn't have any bad experiences. It was all just a fun hobby, you know, that was exciting yeah. and something good to look forward to going and doing. And how is comedy how has comedy been 
affected in this lockdown period? Because I'm guessing it really has because of the theatres being shut down. How have you dealt with that? And what is it like being a comedian, I guess, in lockdown? Well, for me personally, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's wiped comedy out pretty much. Um, I know that there are lots of comedians out there and full credit to them who were trying to make it work online and things and, and doing stand-up over Zoom and stuff like that. And it, it doesn't appeal to me, to be honest. I think that maybe I, I rely on having the audience around me a lot more than maybe other comedians do. I know all comedians rely on having the audience around them, but at least they can see them. And so if you're doing comedy on Zoom, you've got like a little grid of faces in front of you smiling, whereas I feel like I'd just be doing it at a wall. So <laughs> yeah. so I've, I've avoided, I kind of stayed out of a lot of that lockdown, um, that lockdown style of stand-up comedy. Um, I had a, a lot of TV booked in. I kind of hit a bit of a purple patch just before it all started and, had quite a lot of things cancelled, which hopefully will come in at the end of the year. I, I did do Have I Got News For You from my living room, which was which was mad as a box of frogs, really, because yeah. the first, first, it was the second time I'd done it, and the first time I'd done it was only just in November, and it was the most surreal experience in my life, sat next to Paul Merton. And if you'd have told me that the next time I'd done it would have been in the middle of my living room wearing an iron shirt, a pair of tracksuit bottoms and no shoes, <laughs> I, would have, <laughs> I would have said you were off your head, so... Um, but in terms of the prospects of comedy, I've got a tour starting in October and, um, it's, I I, I mean, I just can't see how anything like this can work in theatres when there's social distancing in place. And, and even when they release the social distancing, you've then got to overcome a lot of people's instant kind of, um, feelings will be not to go out and do things that aren't necessary, you know? Mm. put themselves in these kind of um, social situations with big groups of people. Um, so I think it might be, you know, it could be next year before we, we start getting comedy up and running properly again. Yeah, I mean, doing comedy on Zoom must be really strange. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't give you any more input on it than the fact that I um, I, I, I kind of, um, I, I've avoided doing it <laughs> for those reasons, so... Mm. And when did you start using your vision? Was that after you found comedy or was that before? Yeah, so my eyesight is hereditary. So I was born with an eyesight condition um, and I wasn't born blind. I was born with, I don't know whether I was born with perfect sight, but my eyesight was always pretty good. Um, And it just deteriorated very, very, very steadily and slowly right through childhood over about 20 years, really. Um, you know, so slowly that you don't notice it. But then when you look back and you remember things you used to be able to do, you can realize how much it has deteriorated. But from one day to the next, you um, you don't really, you know, th- there's no noticeable difference, really. Um, so it was never really something that I had to come to terms with. You, you when you know if, if something happens, you know, let's just say for the sake of argument, you're hit by a bus and you, you lose your eyesight. You've got to you've got to deal with that, and you've got to come to terms with it. And the next day, you wake up, you can't see, and that's a, that's a an inciting incident, you know. And you've you've kind of got to overcome that. But when it's so unnoticeable from day to day, there's never that moment really, and and so you kind of live in this constant denial, um, kind kind of always clinging on to things you used to be able to do 
until maybe something happens that makes you realise that you shouldn't really be doing that thing anymore. Like when I knocked myself out playing football and ended up in hospital or nearly got hit by a bus crossing the road or um, nearly knocked, you know, almost knocked an old lady over because I didn't see her in the, in the, in the dusk. And <laughs> you think, well, maybe I shouldn't just be um, blundering my way down the street anymore. But um, it's all these little things that happen at different stages that make you realise you shouldn't be doing things um and and as i say a kind of constant denial that you don't really ever have to come to terms with if if that makes sense and do you think you have come to terms with it now or is that just a gradual um growing and a sort of gradual process i suppose i mean this sounds odd but it's so much easier being blind than being able to see a little bit because you're constantly trying to do things that you just can't do when you can see a little bit. And as I say, you're in that denial and you're in that, um, you know, still trying to do the things that you used to be able to do. And it takes you to be, not be able to like do anything at all with regard to vision. And for you to, that to kind of set in for a while, for you to find new ways of doing things. And once you find new ways of doing things, that don't involve being able to see. Obviously, that doesn't change because you can't go you can't go blinder than blind. So, <laughs> so um, it, life just becomes a little bit easier, you know. When you when you when you can see a little bit, you still try to do things on your own. But when you can't see anything, you learn to rely on other people's help and assistance a lot more, and that just makes life easier. You learn to go into a shop and ask someone to help you rather than trying to find the thing yourself, you know. So I have to say, for me personally, getting up on stage and um cracking jokes and hoping people will laugh is is terrifying and I care way too much what people think but for you I I just wonder how scary that is when you're on stage and you and you can't see and you're just hearing the audience laugh or not laugh how that how that feels it is terrifying when you start doing it I I mean when I my first gig I don't think I didn't eat all day I, I smoked back then. I think I smoked two packets of cigarettes. Just uh, drank a lot of coffee. You could have pushed me over with a finger. I, w- I was terrified. And that terror just subsides a little bit from one gig to the next. And, and, and you know, over... I've been doing this 17 years now. So, like, doing clubs, I don't get nervous in a scared way. It's more of a, a nervous energy, you know, which is which is a good thing. As You know, you can channel that into, into your performance. Um, but it's just you, you, you get used to it. It doesn't matter, you know. You'd be scared jumping out of a plane until the tenth time, tenth time you're doing it, and it just becomes, you know, just something you do. And and it's all to do with the setting as well. So like, even after doing stand up for a year and being able to stand up at open mic gigs and, as you say, either try and get a laugh or, or deal with not getting a laugh. I was working for a company at the time and when we'd have a big meeting and you'd get the whole floor in for the meeting and then they'd say any questions and I'd have a question in me, I'd, I'd be terrified of putting my hand up in case I sound so stupid. So it's, um, it doesn't, it doesn't like just mean that you don't have that fear of sounding stupid or looking stupid. That's one of my, I mean, that is one of my biggest Fears is the fear of saying something stupid, sounding stupid, looking ridiculous, being kind of the figure of attention for the wrong reasons, looking vulnerable, looking out of my depth. All of those things which all wrap up under one umbrella of, of, of I mean, I suppose it's, it's, it's control as well, not 
not being in control of a situation, losing mm. control of a situation. I think that's what's interesting because and striking because that is, you know, as we as you told me that that is your fear. But yet you're on stage, you know, every night when you're touring or on these TV programs and a lot of it's improvisation. So you don't have much control over what happens or if people laugh or if people don't laugh. But then your fear is losing control and looking stupid. So I find that really a really interesting contradiction, if you like. Yeah. And it took me ages to realise this, but I think... A lot of my fear of doing stand-up. Or, I mean, I've worked with comedians who get so nervous. Even after, even when they've been professional for ages, they'll still get really, really nervous before going on stage. And they're nervous a lot of the time because of the because of the gig and because of how they're gonna, you know, do it on stage. For me, I was always so worried about the logistics of getting onto the stage and whether I was gonna look stupid doing it. And what people were going to be thinking about me while I was getting up on stage because people didn't know that I was blind. So they'd be thinking, oh, God, what's wrong with this fellow? Oh, what have we got to sit through here? Um, I was always so hung up on that that once I got that out of the way, the the rest of it was relatively easier, if, if you know what I mean. The bigger fear was what people thought of me before I started doing stand-up, getting onto the stage, all that, all that stuff I just said. That when I got that out of the way, the other bit was barely... An issue, if, if you see what I mean. And for quite some time, if, if something went wrong, so say I, I got on stage and the microphone lead was tangled um, around the microphone stand and, it, and it, it wasn't the start to a gig that I'd anticipated or it th in my head wanted, I'd, it would throw me. Because I'd think then that people were looking at me going, oh God, he doesn't know what he's doing. And I'd panic. And I think I realised after a while that how I was starting gigs and, and letting all of this affect me was maybe um, doing myself harm in, in, mm. in terms of performance. And it took me a while to realize that the best thing I can do is to actively not care, is to really, really, really try and not care. And the best way, it's, that's the irony, that's the contradiction, is the best way that, because I really do care. And the best way that I could care was to try not to care. And if I could give off the impression to the audience that I didn't give a shit about anything going wrong, about the microphone lead being tangled, about, um, you know, somebody in the audience walking across me at the beginning, if I just didn't give a shit and that was just something that happened and the microphone leads tangled, nowadays I'll just lift the microphone, stand up to someone in the front and go untangle that for us, will you, mate? And then, you know, and, and by, by giving off that air, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the audience go, ah, oh, this guy sounds, he knows what he's doing. We're, we're, we're okay with this fella. But, but you know, I, I, I had to actively enforce that because I do care and I care mm. too much and I worry about what people think. It's funny because comedians, when I look, look at any comedian, it feels like that they really don't care what people think and they really don't care about looking stupid or you know, how they come across because that's their, that's their putting themselves out there to be exposed in that way. So I find it really interesting that you say that you do really care. And actually, perhaps we all do really care. And no matter how many people say they don't care, we actually do. Oh, massively. Yeah. I mean, there are some comedians that really don't care and, you know, just will do their thing 
the way that they do their thing. And if the audience aren't going with it, then sod them. That, that's the audience's problem. Whereas I care so much that if the audience... I'll change what I'm doing. I will, I will, I will morph myself into whatever... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you know what they I mean? want. I mean, if it's around, if, I mean, if I'm playing a Wednesday evening, it's a lovely audience of couples and families. Um, you know, I, I will do a completely different gig to if it's a rowdy stags and hens. My, you know, yeah. the swear jars full at the end of the night <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I care. I want them. I want to fit into what they expect in a in a, in a way. Mm. It's um, and how does this how does this sort of fit into your personal life? Does this uh, do your fears are they the same in your in personally or are they quite different? Yeah. So I mean, I think the fear of like looking stupid and looking um, vulnerable or out of control or out of your depth. I mean, that's just something that applies across the board and especially with like being blind as well. Like, so I don't use a stick, a white stick, um, because I'm, I'm not very good at it. And I'm not very good at it because I've never been able to use it enough to get good at it. And I've never been able to use it enough to get good at it because I'm too worried that I just look stupid doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, for people that aren't familiar with the the um, the, the high level technical um, aspects of a white stick, basically you wave it in front of you until it hits something, and then you know something's there, and you move around that thing. And so you're constantly just drawing attention to yourself with with um, with this with this thing, and I hated it. I hated being like, and and the reality of the situation is that you know. People don't. People probably didn't care. People probably just went around their day and didn't even notice you. But in your in your head, you think that you are the thing that everyone's staring at. And I, it's mad that I can travel around the country and stand up in front of like hundreds of people on stage and and do shows. But I can't go into the go down to Marks and Spencers around the corner to buy a loaf of bread because you know there's too many things that can happen that I'm not in control of and and look a bit stupid. So mm. does any of that make sense? Completely. Completely, yeah. I was just, I was just listening, and it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a juxtaposition, a conflict of whatever you, I don't know, whatever the word is. Some of these other interviews I've done, it's a lot of people. They say their fear and their career choice is they've just moved towards their fear. Yeah, but they've, but the thing is, if you become good enough at something, you can, you can control ninety five percent of. Of, of, of the environment and the, the things that go on. And you need that extra little bit to, you know, keep you on your toes and, and allow you to grow and get better. But with comedy, I've found that I can control 95% of the, the environment around me do, doing it. Whereas going to the shop to buy a loaf of bread, I feel like I'm in control of 5% of it. I'm in control of putting my left leg forward and my right leg forward, but then not the people coming the other way and the... The tables and chairs on the pavement and the advertising boards and the fact that it starts raining and then you can't hear the tyres properly, the cars, because they're going through puddles and you don't know which direction. You know, there's just too many things that I go, do you know what, I'll just um, I'll just do a car though and, um, and I'll get Ubers. So many of these shows feel like they're improvised. So how do you prep for that? It is, they don't give you any prep for it, really. Um, but you can prepare, you can watch what I like to you. You can watch it and, and watch people telling their stories and go, okay, how? who tells the funniest stories and how are they 
how are they telling them? You can think of questions that might come up and try and think of funny answers to them just in case somebody <laughs> asks you that question. But like, um, who wants to be a millionaire when they ask the questions on TV and you have to... <laughs> And always think, could I get these right? Could I win a million quid? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it, it's 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 when when I did okay when, when I did um, eight out of ten catalyst countdown. Right? It's 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 an improvisational panel show. They don't send you anything. There's nothing to prepare. And I thought, you know what? It's probably really funny me doing countdown because it's a visual game. And if if I was rubbish at it, it would be really really funny. Um, but probably get boring very quickly. So what what would probably be better would be if I was really, really good at it. That would be surprising. So I, I literally watched like 50, 60 episodes of Countdown and I practiced like shit for like <laughs> weeks before, you know, and um, and that, the, the, the thought that I, I kind of felt like I was, I had little strategies for remembering the letters in my head and remembering the numbers in my head, reduced some of the fear of going into the into the show the whole thing didn't feel overwhelming because i i had some control on 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 how i did it if, if you see what i mean doing have i got news for you it, it, it's so out of my depth i'm not a political comedian but but to prepare i i mean i i read the newspapers every day for about a month beforehand because i knew i was going to be doing it and i just wanted to get myself in that frame of mind of making sure that I knew what the name of the Home Secretary was. <laughs> because I, I was, I was like, with what I lied to you, if you're not very funny on it, they just, you just won't make the edit as much and people won't really notice and you'll get to the end of the episode and you'll watch it back and you go, I wasn't in it that much because I didn't say very funny things. But with, have I got news for you? You could say something stupid that Ian Hislop just destroys you for, you know, and that makes the edit because... It's funny, but you look stupid. And I just thought, oh my god, I could I could come out of this looking really, really bad. And so the, the prepare, 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 prepare. Just just for weeks before. And then, you know, two weeks before I I started writing little comments and jokes on, on news stories and and then the week before, I, I increased that, that frequency and I was, I, was, I was writing little comments on things in the news and little little um jokes on on things I was reading in the papers and and things like that just to arm me with this arsenal of of nuggets of things that I could say and then you turn up and they bring out all these stories you've never seen anywhere and you're like where are you finding these things (laughs) and so you know you you realize that most of the laughs that you get on it just come from things that happen in the moment but the fact that I had prepared allowed me to sit down in the chair feeling like I was a little bit more in control of what was about to come up. And just speaking about control, and I know we talked about the fear of losing control, do you think that it's easier to talk about personal things if you're making a joke of it because then you're not in danger of people laughing at you because you've already already laughed at yourself? When I got into stand-up, I got into stand-up because I liked stand-up and my favourite comedian at the time was Eddie Izzard. I think I just used him as a as a, a comedic role model in that Eddie Izzard is a transvestite and he barely talks about it. And when he does talk about it, you've kind of, it's interesting. And then, then he just moves on again. And, and my attitude was that I wanted to make people forget, I suppose, 
so that when you did say something that was related to you being blind, they'd go, oh, God, yeah, I've forgotten about that. Um, and it would be a little bit more surprising, if, if, if you know what I mean. Mm. There's more that makes you you than, than just the one thing that people think is the main thing that makes you you. Um, and as I've been doing comedy more, I think I've found, especially since I became a, a, a dad, I've found that I've actually got a few more interesting, unique perspectives on things that people can relate to on their own level. So a lot of people are parents out there and there's a lot of comedians doing dad comedy or parent comedy or whatever. Um, but I've got a little unique perspective on it, which isn't me just doing, you know, I'm going to do five minutes of blind material. I'm doing five, I can do a five minute story about being a dad that most people can relate to, but then it's got the added little twist in it that makes people see it from a different angle. And so I found myself over the years doing stand-up a little bit more from a personal perspective with regard to me eyesight, but it's it's come more from the fact that I've 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 learned that I've got a little bit more interesting things to say, if you know what I mean, rather than what I the the way I thought about it in the past when I started, which was just ignore it, head down, and and just um, make people forget about it. I'm a little bit more comfortable with it now, or a little bit more confident that. You know, it's not just a I didn't see it joke. It's it's an interesting, an interesting angle on on a on a on a story or something. And what would you say your your fears around being a father were, which I'm sure so many people can relate to, but in your case, especially being blind, you know, what were the what were those fears that you faced? Um, it 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 was being rubbish at it. So. I don't like being rubbish at things. And if I'm rubbish at something and I can't get better at it, I tend not to do it. I used to play football, um, you know, when I in my teens. Well, since I was a kid, playing in the streets in Liverpool and then playing five aside and playing 11 aside. As I got, you know, and when I realised I couldn't play it anymore, I, um, I just stopped playing it. And, and I know that people still play football and you can play football, you know, with, with a ball that makes a noise and all, but it, it, it kind of didn't strike me as playing football properly, if you know what I mean. So I was like, right, well, I just won't do that thing anymore. I, I my degrees in software engineering. So I was a programmer and it would take me a lot longer than the person sat next to me to, to debug something, which, you know, and, and do, you know, actually produce the, um, the code as my eyesight was mostly going. And so I thought, well, I just won't do that anymore because I don't want to be rubbish at it, something that I, because of a reason that I can't improve it, if you know what I mean. I can't improve my eyesight, um, so I'll, I'll just find something else to do. So if I can't do something and I can't practice to get better at it, I tend to just go, oh, I'll just do something else. And I knew that being a dad was something that there were so many aspects of it that I wouldn't be able to do and that I wouldn't be able to get better at. But then you don't really have the choice of going, well, I'll give it a go, and then I just... <laughs> so I was I was terrified of getting into this, you know, in, into this... It, it sounds really horrible to say getting into this situation, but, you know, I was terrified of becoming a dad and being in this situation where I would constantly have to face things that I couldn't do um, and wouldn't be able to do. Um and that kind of went against every kind of mechanism I'd built up to um, protect my uh, my inner health over the mm. years. Brush it under the carpet, turn around, find something else, you know. And um, so I was terrified. I've, I've just been shit at it, really. And now, how is it now? I'm good at bits of it. 
I'm 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 good at being a dad in terms of you know all of the gooey stuff, and I'm terrible at a lot of some of the logistical things. You know, I can't I can't take my daughter out for a walk, the two of us, or take her to the park to run around and you know kick a ball around or whatever. She's too young to kind of take any responsibility for the two of us. <laughs> And, um, and as I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a calamity when I'm out. I've never built up that confidence to, to you know, so there's lots of aspects of, of it that I just can't do. But the one thing that it has done is it's made me more comfortable with my limitations. It's, it's taught me to do something that I probably have never really had to do in the past, which is become comfortable with my limitations. Because as I said, I'd normally just you know, kick them under the carpet and, and okay, ignore that, ignore that, let's find something else. And so it, it's made me have to face that and become more comfortable with my limitations. And I think that that is probably, you know, becoming more comfortable with my limitations has made me more comfortable um, with being blind, which has made me more comfortable talking about it on stage, maybe. Maybe me not talking about it was under the guise of I'm going to challenge people's preconceptions and I like Eddie Izzard and I'm going to do mad abstract comedy was really just me not, you know, being comfortable talking about these things on stage. And so it, it's it's kind of mellowed me out a lot. And, um, you know, and as I say, it's, 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 it's all tied up with getting older and just getting a little bit more comfortable in your skin as well, isn't it? So it's hard to put your finger on what is the thing that, that changes you. But um, it's changed my relationship to me, I think. That's quite profound, isn't it? Mm, very beautiful. <laughs> beautiful but, um, as well, yeah. can I just say? Yeah, okay, cool. Leave that <laughs> bit in. I definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's something else I do as well. I try and make a joke if I say something, you know, as I say, I, I shy away from personal things and being open and, and overexposing yourself. Um, and, and, and it's my natural instinct to then do the, do the Chandler Bing and um, make a joke out of it. Yeah, I read somewhere that you um, that you wanted to kill Facebook, or you wanted to. I hate it. I do hate something it. to it. I can't. I mean, there's just so many things about social media I can't stand. I do, I would have loved to have been a comedian in the mid '90s or something, or when if, if somebody said, "What do you do for a living?" and you said, "I'm a comedian," that would have been it. They would just they would have had to go and watch you somewhere, get a time out, and go and watch you somewhere rather than just instantly looking up every thought that you've had over the last six years and people's opinions of you and... and Do you read oh. all those reviews and opinions? I've tried not to pay attention and I often tell people that I don't pay attention to create the illusion that I'm quite kind of well-adjusted, but I... <laughs> I um you know I'll go up the Edinburgh Festival and I go right I'm not reading any reviews and um and then I'll I'll find myself having a sneaky little look and then a sneaky second look and then it doesn't last long um because I do I do want to know and it's it, it's weird as well it's not that I want to know what it's not that I want to know what such and such a person saying about me on a website who's reviewed a show it's what I want to know what people that I know have read. If you know, I mean, I want to know what, me, what, what, what's my dad read about me? What's my mate read about me? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's that need to know all of these things and know what everyone's thinking about you that um, I find it very hard not to. Um, but, you know, I, I hate having to post on social media and, and the obligation to as a comedian to have this kind of online profile and then you post something and you go, 
oh, was that right? Did I say the right thing? Did it come across right? And did anybody like it? Let me check back. Did anybody? Because I am like that and I can't get that out of me and I hate that about 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 me and about it and about, you know, so. I think it. it's really refreshing that you're honest about it and I think it's really refreshing and cool. I wanted to talk to you about your this fear of flying and the fear of the sea because I think that all links to this fear of being out of control. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it all comes down to this control in your environment. And um, I'd, I'd like to think I don't come across like that. But in, internally, it panics me if I'm not. And being on a plane, I've never been comfortable with it. And it's, firstly, I can't see my surroundings. And so you get turbulence. In my head, this, this, the, the, the cabin crew... The stewards are all slapping their hands on their faces with open mouths and silent screaming about the impending terror, the doom that we're about to encounter when really they're just serving gin and tonics. And I don't see the normality around me. And with every little bump, I don't know what is next, if you know what I mean. I don't know whether we're about to kind of drop out the sky a 100 feet, a 1,000 feet or... You know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's weird because I've often thought about this, that like if I'd never sat in a car with somebody driving, only like ever being in a trailer <laughs> where you've got no information about what's going on, how, how would you respond to driving with speed bumps and slopes and hills? And, and, and you know what I mean? Like, because you'd have no information about what these things were that were happening around you. But... You sat in the car and somebody goes, "Oh yeah, we just got um, we've just got this in front of us, or we're just gonna go, you know, we've got all these. It was just a speed bump, or it was just a pothole, or what, do you know what I mean?" And if I was sat in the cockpit of a plane with the pilot and he was talking me through what was going on, I think I'd be fine to be honest because I'd have the information. Information is 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 is, is power in a way in terms of feeling that you've got some control in a situation. Mm. So. I, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of in the trailer at the back, not knowing what's going on with no visual, no windows and no, no visual comfort, if you, if you know what I mean. And so I, I hate it. I've always hated flying. Um, I, I, I went through a, a period of trying to take sleeping tablets and, and things, but they didn't really. The only time it worked, actually, I, t I took I was going away on a stag weekend with, with my mates and um, I took a sleeping tablet and about five minutes later they announced that there was a technical problem with the plane and we were going to be delayed for three hours and I couldn't stay awake in the bar. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But <laughs> my head was all over the place so I couldn't keep it up straight. And and the sea, again, it's just... I, can't, I, I, I suppose not only am I not a strong swimmer, um, but I, I, if I'm in the sea, I can't see which direction the shore's in. And the last time I went in the sea, I was in Brazil with my wife and she kind of coaxed me out. And um, I went out and I, I went past that point where your toes can touch the floor. And I, I just, in, I've never forgiven her. <laughs> to this day. To never day. forgiven her. I've like... For I, I just even now, like when we I, I refuse to go in the sea and I'll bring she go, I'll go, no, because last time you took me out past where I could touch it, and she's like, Would you just let that go? We just it, you were literally there were children out further than you. I go, It doesn't matter. I just I was I could, it, I might as well have been in the middle of the ocean. I, I, I hated it. 
Um, but it all comes down to, um, I suppose, information and control. I, I, you, when you can't see what's around you, you're lacking a lot of information, and and you know, I'm and I'm, I'm massively out of my depth, figuratively and literally. And do you have a coping mechanism for that? Don't go in the seat. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my um, fair enough coping mechanism for that. I mean, in terms of flying, I I do it if I have to. Often you 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 can't really. I mean, we went we went to Disneyland last year and we we got the Eurostar. I was very happy about that. But anything beyond that is um, you need to fly, really, don't you? I'm I'm just I'm a nightmare to sit next to because I'm I can't relax, I can't I can't sleep because I'm too on edge and it's it's exhausting and um, and I'm I'm constantly my wife's next to me and what was that? What was that noise? What was that? And she's trying to watch a film and she tries to ignore me or she tries pretend she's asleep. <laughs> I'm just. I know I'm a nightmare to sit next to, but it's exhausting. It is genuinely exhausting because I, I'm just at the heightened level of, of of awareness constantly for the whole trip. I'm the same, but I'm I'm not blind, and so I sure. Yes, I win, don't I? Heightened. <laughs> yes, you definitely win. Because <laughs> I my my boyfriend just will refuse to sit next to me sometimes because he's just like, oh, stop hitting and poking me and saying yeah. you're scared over turbulence. Yeah, I'm like a little startled rabbit with a little kind of sat up on my haunches and I'm just twitchy and just, you know, what was that? What was that? Who's that? Where was that? Yeah, well, we're coming to the end and I've got these questions that I always ask everyone at the end. Okay. But actually, I'd like to add one for you. Yes. Which is what's, what's what's the scariest gig you've ever done? I mean, the boring answer is the scariest gig I've ever done is my first gig because I felt physically sick. Like, I, I was terrified. Um, but since then, probably live at the Apollo, it wasn't just a gig, it was an opportunity. And you've not only got the fear of, I'd never played a room that size before. I didn't know how I would play that level of feedback from an audience that I would hopefully get. And not only was I playing the room that size for the first time, but it was being filmed to go on BBC One. It's not like they go, do you want five goes and then we'll film the sixth one. But also... It's an opportunity and it's an opportunity you've kind of wanted for ages. And it was the first of these uh, mainstream TV opportunities that I had. And it was very much my feeling inside was that if you don't make the most of it, then you don't get another one. So all of these things wrapped up and um, I made a lot of visits to the toilet that day. Uh, but, but, but it went well, didn't it? It, it, went, did it well. went amazing. Because, like I mean, it went so well that... Once you, as I said, I said before, once you defeat yourself, it's the easiest gig in the world. And the only thing in your way is yourself and all of them thoughts in your head. And once you get the first laugh and you find the timing and you go, oh, this is going to be all right. It was it was a doddle. You know, you're like your own end of level boss on a SNES game. You've got to defeat yourself before you can. <laughs> before you can move on. Yeah, Another very profound comment yeah, yeah, yeah. from you, Chris. Hey, I'm, I'm on a roll here. <laughs> on a roll. They come in threes, so, so strap yourself yeah. in. Where Where do you go when you're feeling fearful? And this could be in your mind, imagination, or it could be an actual place. An actual place is always, I just like being at home. I like being at home in with me things. I, I've realised, and I know that... Um, you know, coronavirus has been devastating for a lot of people. And so 
it's always very a bit you know being a little bit kind of um finding humor in it but i i genuinely think that lockdown is my perfect type of holiday because I, I don't have to fly anywhere i don't have to go anywhere uh, you know no one can visit either you 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 know it's it, uh, i've got my stuff around me my wife's here my daughter's here and i'm at home and it's comfortable and it's the least stressful place is to just be at home so practically at home in my head I'm, I'm a massive liverpool fan and uh, of late I, I i keep on reliving that liverpool four barcelona nil just reliving it in my head and the goals and then I'll, I'll you know, maybe I'll go online and listen to the commentary again off the off YouTube or whatever but um that that's a that's a, an amazing thing that happened something that I'm passionate about lately that kind of distracts me mind I support Tottenham I'm so. sorry about that probably <laughs> enemies <laughs> <laughs> um what is the song that you go to that makes you feel good uh, I'm going to expand on song and just give you an, an album or a performance, which is it's it, it's um, it's like a comfort blanket, to be honest. It's um, MTV Unplugged in New York by Nirvana. Everything about it, it's just it's familiar. It's the tempos, right? The the you know everything. Everything about it is. Um, I mean, I, I know that you could probably listen to it and go, oh, "That's quite miserable, isn't it?" But it's um, it's 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 comforting. It's 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 a lovely, warm tempo and tone. And I suppose if you look deeper into it as well, it's it's um, it, it was massively out of their comfort zone. And and you know, you you could you could say, well. Maybe I find it comforting because I'm listening to somebody who massively do something that was way out of their comfort zone. And um, but but I think it's just lovely and warm and and familiar. And um, as I say, it's it's like a, a a comfort blanket. Really, love it. And what would you do if you were not afraid? I'd be on benefits. When I when I I realised I wasn't going to do programming anymore. I um I was unemployed for ages. I couldn't get it find a job and it, it was very different times 20 years ago in terms of just um obligation of companies for accessibility and inclusion and things like and diversity and things like that. It was very it was difficult to get a job and I was unemployed for a while and I was on benefits and to be honest it's easy like could have just been on benefits stayed on benefits and I suppose it was the fear of not doing not not putting yourself out of your comfort zone you know not not challenging yourself and you know i went and did voluntary work for a while and then got a job in a call center and, and think it kind of it was that so i suppose the reason i did all them things is is it was a fear of not doing anything mm, yeah completely and i'm sure you're a really big inspiration for people that have lost their sight because i'm sure they look at you and see someone that's really followed a dream um living a dream being a comedian and um it's all a front though because like i mean in terms of like the i i know i know quite a lot of people just through you know life and, and being in them circles i know quite a lot of people who've lost their sight or and like in the on on the spectrum of it being a comedian gives a false indication of competence i'm miles down the spectrum there's so many people out there that just don't give a shit and just go out there and Ah, just this is me and blunder their way through and then you know I, I, I kind of look up to them and go god I wish I was more like that <laughs> yeah but there'll be people looking up to you yeah I mean none of us will be looking at each other though that's the problem isn't it we'll all be 
you looking up to me? I'm over here. Uh. <laughs> and Chris, what's on the horizon? I know that's quite a strange question for now because we're in this very strange world right now. But um, what's what's the next thing? And if that's next year, is it? Are you touring or? Well, yeah. Hopefully, the, I mean, hopefully, I've, I still hold hold hope that the um, the tour will happen in October. The tickets are on sale. Um, for October, November, December, um, in various places, and you know, if it doesn't happen, then the dates will get moved to next year. So, um, but that is hopefully, hopefully it'll happen, and hopefully the TV stuff will start happening again. I got I, my ambition with TV. It's it's mad. Your ambitions kind of change as you do things, don't they? But in terms of the panel shows, it was amazing to do the ones I've done. But I always thought once I've done QI, you can stick a fork in me, you know. I'm, I'm, if I, and I got booked onto it, and it got it got cancelled. The de- the last day of filming they did was the day before I was filming, so it never happened. But we're looking to get back in and and finish off the series in August. So um, hopefully, if the TV stuff comes back in and I can get um, I can get QI done, then um, you can stick a fork in me because I'll be, I'll be done. I'll be con- I'll be content. I hope no one actually does stick a fork in you, Chris. <laughs> you wouldn't want that. And where can people find you? Serbazin. Not, fi- not find, find you. Um, just chrismacorslan.com is, um, is my website. Um, it's um, M-C-C-A-U-S-L-A-N-D. Uh, it's, it's one of them things that sometimes Google doesn't even know what you're typing. Um, chrismacorslan.com and... Um, reluctantly on social media, although I haven't put anything on any of them for ages. Um, but when I am doing gigs, they, they go up on there and stuff, you know. Thank you, Chris, so much for coming on Fear Itself. And I really hope this wasn't too painful for you. It was excruciating. But um, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks for asking us. Thank you so much for listening to Fear Itself, and I hope it was as interesting and as useful to you as it was for me. It would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend so that other people can hear about us. Join me next week where I will be speaking to another wonderfully inspiring guest. Until then, take care.